there'll be an end and we all share that end and I'm, I'm okay with that. I figure sometimes you should push it. Sometimes you got to push it. Live it up. YOLO. We hear it all the time. But what happens when the living it up threatens the life that you so want to keep? And this, and this voice that I hadn't heard just went, well, you're dead. And I went, God, shit, really? Hey there, and welcome to Mountain Meister. It's the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I am your host, Ben Shank, and with us is Gavin McClurk. Hello, Gavin. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Oh, it's great. I told you before, I'm having a lot of fun uh, looking at what you've done with your life. Uh, (laughs) Gavin McClurk is an adventurer of many disciplines. Uh, First, a ski racer in the early 90s for the U.S. ski team. Then he decided to establish a bunch of first descents in a kayak. Uh, He also lived for 13 years at sea and has sailed around the world twice. And most recently, paragliding is the activity of choice. He holds the North American record for the longest foot launch, where he flew 200 40 miles in one go. I believe that was from uh, Idaho to Montana. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's correct. From, from my home site, I actually moved to Sun Valley, Idaho a few years ago to, to chase big distance, and it worked. The, the following year after I moved here, I flew from my home site, which is Mount Baldy, the ski area, to uh, just south of Helena, Montana, a little place called Canyon Ferry Lake. I couldn't get across the lake, so I had to land. <laughs> okay. And I, I saw this is kind of how my mind operates. I saw that you did it in seven hours. So I was wondering how long it would take to drive there. And it looks like it takes about six hours to drive there. So just a little bit longer. Yeah. yeah I mean, the, the way that my, my buddy was chasing me on the ground, he actually launched before me that day and got kind of unlucky and, and flew into some shade and, and had to land and race back to his car and then chased me on the ground. But he was driving, don't tell the cops, but he was driving 100 miles an hour all day and he came in about two hours hours after I did. So, you know, we fly with these live trackers so he could kind of see where I was every time he could pick up internet, which uh-huh. isn't many places here in this part of the world. But um, yeah, it was, you know, we get to fly straight and they have to go over passes and around corners and up through towns and stuff. So I was actually quite a ways out ahead of him. <laughs> well, maybe that's a new form of transportation. Yeah, yeah there you go. Well, the problem is you just never know where you're going to go. Right. <laughs> I, I don't know if you get this a lot, but I honestly, I feel like I'm talking to the man in the Dos Equis commercials, the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> I love those commercials. Yeah, they're pretty good, right? <laughs> they are. He doesn't always travel from Idaho to Montana, but when he does, it's by paragliding. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I love those. <laughs> so I, I want to start things off by talking about your childhood. Um, at least over the past 150 people we've talked to, it seems like sometimes adventure is an answer to hardship. I'm wondering, what do you remember from your childhood? Yeah, you know, I mean, with hardship, I mean, I had an amazing childhood. I had, you know, my mom and dad were both terrific parents. Um, I think the the big kind of uh, snap maybe that happened early on was they were they got divorced when I was six, so my sister was zero pretty much. She was totally newborn, and uh, and my dad left, and it was a, kind of an ugly divorce, and and it was ugly after that for years. You know, when you kind of throw the kids in the middle of a bad divorce it can be pretty bad. I wonder how much that maybe influenced 
you know, my decisions. My mom has claimed, uh, you know, for since the beginning, you know, she, she was one of these parents that like, you know, when, when they brought me home from the hospital, um, she, you know, my dad went around, he'd read the book and he went around and put all the little tabs in the, in the, uh, outlets so I wouldn't stick my finger in the outlets and get electrocuted and my mom went right behind him and took them all back out <laughs> like you know, if, he, if my if my son's stupid enough to do that he'll he can take a shock you know and and uh, you know that was really her method of, of parenting um, was that you know I was supposed to go out and get scooped and bruised and hurt and uh, and she never really gave me a lot of sympathy that was just what kids are supposed to do and um, and so and, and my dad was also pretty adventurous so I'm sure that combination um, really helped but I don't I you know, I don't know that there was a real kind of point that made me, you know, lead off in this direction. My mom just said it was always like with the ski racing, um, it was just never an option for her to not take me to the hill. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I just, I had to go skiing every day. She'd pick me up from school every single day and we'd go to the hill. And then on the weekend, it was just, she just said it was, it was like, it would have been a pointless fight to have. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it was just something that I've, I've been pulled towards since the beginning. I, I remember sitting with my mom on a river in Australia. And I was in college. This was long after the ski, you know, the ski career ended with some pretty bad knee injuries. Um, and I, I went off to college and tried to figure out what I was going to do next. And I was doing a... Um, I was doing a, uh, you know, one of those semester abroads down in Australia mm-hmm. and she came down to visit and we went on a backpacking trip and true to my nature, I took her on a really, really bad trail. It was way too hard for, for mom. And I ended up carrying all the gear. And that night we were down on this river and beautiful sky and, and, uh, and she was worn out and I was, I was kind of rubbing her feet and had this little campfire going and, and she kind of went, God, Gavin, I, I get it. I, I get it now. And I'm like, what, what do you mean you get it, mom? And she's like, I understand now why you do all this stuff all the time. Like her, her dream for me was always like white picket fence and corporate. That was, <laughs> that was what she, you know, that's what she knew. That was her generation and that's what she knew. And it just totally freaked her out that I was always chasing the opposite of that, I guess. That must and, have been a nice point in your life to have your mom say amazing. that to you. Yeah. yeah, amazing. It really was. It was, you know, and she's never questioned it since. Um, I think that that was, that was kind of a turning point for her and, and certainly it, it's it's nice to be accepted by your parents for what uh-huh. Fortunately, the parents, my parents are very supportive of the Mountain Meister podcast, which, uh, which yeah, takes That's a little the- bit of pressure off of me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So, so you went ski racing and then what, like you just started kayaking. Did you have any experience in kayaking? I mean, you've done first oh. ascents. Yeah, no. I, so after skiing, um, you know, I had these knee injuries. I tried to come back the next year because I had just made the UST team and then like two weeks later blew out my knee. So it was mm-hmm. a very, very short stint on the US team. And then I tried to come back next year, blew it out again. And then I was like, oh, man. I mean, the doctor basically said, listen, if you keep doing this, you're not going to walk when you're 30. And I know you can't understand that when you're as an 18 year old, but because uh, you think you're invincible, but you're not. And so I, I anyway, I went off to school, went to CU in Boulder and uh, I learned to climb in, in Boulder and got really into big wall climbing very quickly got super addicted to climbing and um i can't remember who the who who was the instigator but somebody took me boating one day and you know we went to the pool and learned how to roll and and went out on a, a really mellow probably like class two river or something uh, up around vale and 
that was basically the end of my climbing was that day. <laughs> it was it was just like, oh my God, this is a lot more fun, you know, and I don't have to diet and be all intense and and swear at the mountain all the time. And, you know, I, it, it was just, it was a lot more playful, I guess, uh, boating was. And then, but very quickly, um, I started running really steep stuff, very steep creeks and much more kind of class five plus even six, uh, you know, kind of unrunnable type stuff that, that all happened pr- pretty quickly. I, you know, I probably skipped some, uh-huh. probably skipped some of the base. Um, and I started paddling with a kid named Teo Berman. Um, he went on to be a really, uh, hardcore Red Bull kayaker, uh, for a long time. I'm sure, I'm not sure if he still does. I don't follow kayaking anymore, but for a long time held, held all the world records for the, for the biggest waterfalls. And he and I went on a trip together. Um, I think this would have been, 98 uh he was just 18 he was really just getting started on his career i was 24 25 at the time and we went down through central america for six months um and you know i had a van and and we took off from Vale and went down there and and just our whole the whole purpose of it was just to nail first first ascents and um and that was really the end so i had been paddling at that point for quite a few years uh you know through the end of college and then for the early part of my 20s and um it was just getting really extreme at that point it was uh you know every run was kind of like one of these near-death experiences and uh got caught in a in a waterfall down in mexico on her first descent i don't even remember the name of the river um but uh i they were waiting for a body my buddies were mm-hmm. i was with Teo and another kid kid brett and and they were you know i'd gotten pummeled in the bottom of this waterfall for so long and then i and i came out of my boat and got pinned to the bottom of the river. Um, couldn't see anything. The river had been flooding. It was totally brown. So, and I so you're saying I, you're saying that you're trapped underneath this waterfall, yep. pouring down on you, about to drown. Yeah, I basically did drown. It was one of these, we, you know, we used to train in the car. We would hold our breath for, you know, minutes and minutes and, and we, we would train for this stuff. And, uh, but I had been getting pummeled in the bottom of this waterfall. It wasn't a huge waterfall, but I, I kind of missed the move and, and I'd been getting pummeled for a long time and, uh, and then pulled my skirt and got flushed out and I thought I got flushed into a cave I just got flushed Oof. deep usually when you get flushed deep you get flushed through you know you've got a you've got a PFD on and it flushes you through the hole and and it wasn't I was just being pinned to the bottom of the river and this was long after the whole point where you're kind of like mm-hmm. you know like you're searching for air and uh and yeah, it, it sounds crazy, but I'd been down at this point. I was about four months or five months into this trip. And since the day we left Vail that summer, I'd been working all summer to save money for this trip. And since the day we left, I had this crazy voice in my head. And I'm not an overly spiritual guy, um, but this voice just every single day of this trip was just, it just kept saying, you're not coming home. Mm. You're not coming home. It was really spooky. And I just kept trying to ignore it. And I, and eventually I told Teo and Brett about it. And, and Teo was adamant. He's just like, you got to stop paddling. And I just wasn't in a very good headspace, I guess you could say. And, but I, you know, I'd kind of been warned <laughs> by whatever this was, this voice. And so I was on the bottom of this river and I'd been down there a long time. And, and I, you know, I later learned that Teo and Brett had, you know, they went to each side of the river and they came up with their throw bags. They left their boats, came up on their throw bags. And they said by the time they got to the bottom of the waterfall, there was nothing there. Um, no boat, no me. They, they figured I'd been under the water for five minutes. Um, and that's a long time to be taking a pummeling. And, and, this, and this voice that I hadn't heard just went, well, you're dead. And I went, God, 
shit, really? You know, <laughs> and it was like this two way conversation. It was crazy. It, it, and, and then the silence. And then this, I mean, I remember this like it was yesterday. And then this, the voice went, but if you're not, will you listen to me? And I just went, holy shit. And I just started scrambling, just pulling on rocks. And, 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 you know, of course this current caught me and, you know, flushed me up to the surface. And the first thing I saw was Teo's face. They weren't even holding their throw bags anymore. They were just waiting for a body. And, and I saw his face and it was just like, Oh my God. It was, you know, it was like looking at the dead. He was like looking at the dead and, uh, he scrambled down this kind of cliff wall and grabbed my hand and, yeah, and it, and that was really it. For, you know, since then I've done some great river trips, Middle Fork of the Salmon and Grand Canyon, and I mean, I still consider myself a paddler, but I don't go paddling. That that was a, a, a disturbing story to listen to. That made me very uncomfortable to hear yeah. about all of that. And uh, you know, it's like sometimes we talk about like the drugs and adventure. Like you know, they're both addicting. That almost seems like it was your overdose. It was, you know, and, and I think that. Um, it was just so fortunate in, in a lot of ways that I had that experience and, and it didn't kill me because, you know, when you're 25 and you're king of the world and you're making films and you're, and you're doing all this cool stuff, um, you know, you really, you really do think you're invincible. And, you know, and I, and I'd done so many drops that were harder and scarier and probably more life threatening than that one. And, um, but I guess for me, it was like, man, the writing is on the wall here. Mm-hmm. I, I, I learned then, I kind of knew that anyway at that point. We could the ski racing and the climbing and the other stuff, but I don't have a very good stop button. I never have. Um, and, you know, but I, I wouldn't really consider, I guess I used to say that I was adrenaline junkie, but I guess that really switched everything for me and, and made me realize, like, you know what, life is rad. And, and, um, mm-hmm. you know, this, this would suck to, to not be able to participate in it because I, I had a great talk with a good buddy of mine, Jeff Shapiro, a few weeks ago, and you know he talks. He's a wingsuit base jumper, and he's lost a lot of friends um, in the last couple years. You know, Dean Potter and Graham Hunt, and a bunch of these guys. And he talks about you know that the the bit you're robbing yourself of an unknown future. You know, like that what we've done in our lives has been so amazing. What's going to happen? In t- I had no idea mm-hmm. 10 years ago that, or well, 15 years ago that I was going to sail around. I, you know, I didn't grow up sailing. I didn't know anything about sailing. I had no dreams of sailing. Um, you know, I had no idea I was going to go and do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you'd be, if I died in that waterfall in, in Mexico, I never would have done all those things. So it made me a lot less cavalier about right. life. How, how do you balance uh, living in the now when what you're doing is so dangerous and then that won't buy you a future if you get exposed to the downside. That seems like a, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's, yeah. It's tough. It is tough. You know, I mean, I think, you know, for me, like, that's the reason I don't wink so base drum. I don't do it because it scares me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I don't do it because there's no margin, you know, and I, I, I just wouldn't do these things if there wasn't a margin. And, yeah. You know, and I've always believed that if you train well and you make good decisions, um, you know, that you can get away with every once in a while making a bad decision or you can get away with every once in a while some bad luck. And um, it's one of the reasons I've never been super drawn to mountaineering um, mm. because, you know, I, I – I love the mountains. The mountains are where I belong for sure, even though I spent so much time at sea. But, um, you know, there's 
there are variables there that are way beyond your control. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, when really good guys like Alex Lowe go down, that makes me really think, um, that, you know, uh, you know, I, I do a ton of backcountry skiing. And I mean, in, in, in so many ways, backcountry skiing scares me more than anything because it's, it's an impure science. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter how much you know about it. You know, you can still get taken out. And, and, um, so I, I like to think that I'm pretty good about walking away from stuff when it comes to that. The, the difference is, you know, with kayaking or with paragliding is you, it's very hard to hit stop. <laughs> you know, right. when you're, you're committed to a drop, you're committed. Or when you're paragliding, you know, that there's nothing scarier than being in the air when you want to be on the ground. That, that's awful. More Gavin coming up in a bit. But first, you can get 25% off of any socks from our sponsor, Wigwam. I spoke with competition ice climber. Yes, competition ice climber, Gord MacArthur, to learn more about Wigwams. We travel all around the world to various venues and we climb these man-made structures that have, you know, like kind of climbing holds on them as well as ice features. Basically, whoever is the best, who gets the top, kind of wins, and that's sort of how it's defined. So I'm sure you have a lot of tools and equipment. Socks isn't the first thing that comes to mind, but so what kind of features do you look for out of your socks? Well, there, there's a few things. Um, when it comes to competing, I actually really like wearing the Snowmoto Pro Sock uh, for a couple of reasons. One, um, we definitely don't wear layers when we compete, and it's mm-hmm. usually really cold outside, and so... Uh, with those socks, I find them to be probably the best balance sock for um, for warmth. So because I, I pull them like right up to my knees, basically, um, so they kind of act like a base layer for me as well. Huh. Comfort wise, too, um, I don't find them too heavy. Which uh, it, it's funny, like you, you notice little things like that, you know, heavy versus light, and so I, I kind of find them um, to be the best sort of fit for what I do, sort of in the moment of competing. They're warm, they're comfy, they breathe well, which is also really good too because um, if you get cold feet uh, in the wintertime when you're competing, it kind of makes for a miserable time. No pun intended, uh, right? Right, totally right. <laughs> and so um, out of all the socks that I've worn for Wigwam, uh, those ones, I, I keep ordering them. They're, they're just awesome. Snow Moto, cool name. Yeah. What other, what other varieties? I pretty much live in Iron Man Flash Pro Sock. I don't really sit around too much, so I'm kind of – you know, always on the go. Uh-huh. And so um, that sock just can take a beating day in and day out and will last forever. <laughs> so why Wigwam versus probably hundreds of other sock brands that you could use? That, that's actually a, a funny question. Um, I worked at a ski and snowboard and bike shop for years, and that was one of the brands. I mean, we carried um, those guys in Bridgedale, you know, Smartwool. And for some reason, I, I just... I remember putting a pair on for the first time and I was like, whoa, like, I don't know what it was about them. They just fit perfectly um, the first time. And uh, there, after that, there was just no question for me. Get some for yourself. 25% off at wigwam.com using code Meister, M-E-I-S-T-E-R at checkout. If you're wondering how Gavin sustained such long flight, so was I. We talked some more about paragliding. You know, there's 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 a two surface wing. Of course, there's no motor. I mean, you can paramotor, but what I do is 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 you're just using thermals to fly distance. So you're 
you, a thermal is like gas, putting gas in the tank of a car. So you, you use a thermal to get high, take it as high as you can, uh, typically the cloud base, and then you go on glide. And if you find another thermal, you can climb again and you can keep going. So yeah, These are natural thermals, and by that I mean you heat, heat is coming up from the ground? Exactly, yeah. So the, the ground absorbs all that heat until a certain point where it kind of releases. We call them triggers, um, and that could be a car, that could be a tree, it could be a cliff edge. Oh, wow. Um, uh, quite a few things can trigger that heat release. Um, eventually, the, the heat can just build up so much that it'll release on its own. Huh. But um, And so we're flying kind of three areas of the sky. When we're low to the ground, we're flying the ground. When we're in the middle of the, of the sky, we're flying the clouds and the ground. If, if there's clouds, you know, you have blue days as well when you don't have clouds formations but you still have thermals anytime there's heat you have thermals um so you know obviously winter is not a great time to fly but um yeah you know our season kind of is just now coming to an end but yeah we're using and and use sometimes use some wind as well we don't like wind on paragliders Mm. because paragliders don't fly all that fast so we can't you know when you get too much wind you start you know you don't have a whole lot of control you're just going with the wind um, but we can fly in some wind, and that's how we get records and go really far is when we fly in in some wind. Okay. Uh, but mostly we want, you know, we in the mountains, we want pretty still conditions. In the flats, you can deal with a lot of wind because there's not a lot of rotor. But in the mountains, of course, when there's wind, it's just like rivers, kayaking, you get rotor and lees, and, um, you know, you can get some pretty bad air. And, of course, you can't see air, so um, anytime you're, you're tight on the terrain, it can be pretty dangerous to fly in in rotor um it's definitely the most dangerous thing i've ever done it makes kayaking and everything else look like child's play so Um, wait a minute wait a minute you just told me before that (laughs) that kayaking just became way too dangerous and there's too much downside risk and you don't do the base jumping and the wingsuit flying because one thing can go wrong and then you tell me that backcountry skiing gets you all worried and now you're telling me that paragliding is the most dangerous thing you've ever done it, it is by statistics. Um, yeah, I should describe that more. I mean, I think I think that for kayaking, you know, kayaking for me became really dangerous because I got so addicted to really the extreme end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the only place where I found that it was really enjoyable and fun. Um, it, paragliding, I... I it, by statistically it's i mean it's not wingsuit jumping by any means but it's you know guys get hurt and killed all the time um so it it is statistically not a very safe sport um but it's you know like i said i i believe or i wouldn't do it i believe that there's a pretty solid margin there that you know that they have to say you know they're old pilots and bold pilots but no (laughs) pilots you know like the like the bush pilots in alaska um and that's pretty much the case with with paragliding um you know I'm, I'm probably a little more bold than I should be a lot of the time but um, I, I believe that you know with training and and um, practice and you know and having a good head about it and you the basically the key is walking away from the bad days you know you you have to fly the good days because weather is what takes you down it's not the gear it's it's making bad decisions so you know i i believe that you know if you make good decisions then you can survive in this sport or you can not get hurt i have mentors you know guys that fly that i fly with here that are that are incredible pilots that have been doing it for 25 years and they've never had an accident you Mm -hmm. know so you can do it that's just the odds aren't really with you. How, how do you know that it's due to skill and not luck? Um, surviving and not getting hurt? Yes. Because you're, the luck jar runs out. You know, you've got two jars. I, I like this analogy. When I first learned, my instructor said, okay, Gavin, here you go. You've got 
two jars. And in the beginning, your luck jar is completely full with coins. And every time you do something stupid or every time, you know, you pull off something that's a little bit lucky, then the luck jar, you know, gets drained by a coin and it goes over into the experience jar. And eventually the luck jar is going to run out. <laughs> and so I think my luck jar ran out a long time ago and now it's just experience. So I think if you get through that kind of, you know, the beginner stage, um, people don't have enough knowledge. And so that's what makes them dangerous. And then in the intermediate stage, they think they're better than they are. And then that's what makes them dangerous. And then, and when you're an expert or really good at it, we talk about a kind of the expert halo and this exists in every sport. You know, this is the same, I think in any sport that has risk. Um, and then the expert halo, then you think you're invincible. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but you've, by that point, hopefully if you've gotten through those first two stages, you've seen a lot of accidents and I've seen a lot of accidents. I was just got back from the U S nationals in, in California. Last week, and we had two major accidents uh, in two days. It was horrible. Um, one, a very good friend of mine. And, you know, so by then you, you've seen a lot of accidents. Um, hopefully, you haven't seen any deaths, but you probably have. And, um, and then, but you've got the skills and the training and the awareness to make good decisions. And, and like I said, you, you have to walk away from the bad days. You just can't fly. Another saying I, I really love that's not my own is, you know, fly the day, not your desire. Hmm. And that's really important because it's weather that gets us. I like that. You look at it objectively versus yes. emotionally. Exactly. Exactly. You you look at you look at because because every time we launch we want to go big. Um and and but the days change and you get in the air and it's maybe overdeveloping or it's turning into a kind of a thunderstorm day or you've got some Virga or from Mamadas. You know it, the weather can deteriorate. You're you're kind of every paraglider or or hang glider. You know anybody that flies. You know same like the bush pilots in Alaska. You kind of become your own little meteorologist mm -hmm. and. And so you're constantly assessing, is it getting better or is it getting worse? And at some point, you have to pull the plug if it's getting worse. And you have to pull it, pull it early um, because gust fronts and, you know, stuff that happens up in the sky is, is, like, is like being on the ocean. Things can happen really fast. Mm -hmm. and, and so you've got to, you know, like I said, there's nothing worse than being at 18,000 feet and wishing you were on the ground. Can you uh, – again, I don't really know exactly how this works – how do you get down from eighteen thousand feet? Um, you know, we've got some. We've got a few pretty rapid descent techniques. The best of which, if you've got enough room to work, um, is just to spiral as hard as you can. So, you know, a, a, a really good pilot in a really tight spiral can can. Exp can it get it can go down at about 20 meters per second so you're experiencing wow. huge g-force you know so that's the, the danger there is you pass out you know so like i said an experienced pilot and that wouldn't be something that's you know a new pilot could withstand very long they'd black out and then if the thing about being in a, in a in a really tight spiral it's a very stable wing position so you'd black out and the wing would keep doing it without any input so you'd spiral right into the ground and kill yourself have so, you ever blacked out no, I know I've gotten close. You get that, you know, you, we train for this. We train with acrobatics. Acrobatics is a completely different, um, aspect of the sport where you're doing tricks in the air and, and they're, uh -huh. you're using different wings for that. Um, and in acrobatics, you train for G force and they even have like those, um, you know, I forget what they're called. They're like a G force simulator. I've never been in one of those, but they have those as well that a lot of pilots do train for. But, you know, I've been in spirals where my vision started to come in, you know, where you get the mm -hmm. whole like 
tunnel vision, like, whoa, I better back out of this a little bit. But um, that's the fastest way down. You've got other techniques as well, but typically, you know, you're if you're that high and and you suddenly really need to be on the ground, you've pushed it way too far. That's yeah. you you shouldn't be <laughs> you shouldn't be. You've already made the bad move. Tell me if this is just a completely ridiculous idea, but what if there was a way to disconnect your the paraglide parachute and as a backup you have a parachute on your back in a backpack they have that they um, do. <laughs> yeah they have that with acrobatics they haven't okay. really i mean that we we could use them for cross country as well but they're pretty heavy rigs and mm-hmm. and we're really concerned about weight not so much for when we're flying but when we fly cross country we can often land in places that are pretty hard to get out of mm-hmm. and it's just just sucks carrying all that stuff so um but they do they do have those they're they're being they're pretty new in mm-hmm. on the scene they just came on the scene a few years ago and and they're great for acrobatics because you can have in acrobatics you often get in really messy situations you throw mm-hmm. your reserve a lot when you're when you're training in, in acro okay. yeah reserve parachute mm-hmm. but these cutaways are much safer because when you throw your reserve parachute it cuts the main wing away and and just comes out immediately what it wouldn't do though to your answer your question is it wouldn't allow you to free fall, you know. So if you're way up high and you need to get down really fast, um, mm-hmm. we don't have a system that you can cut away and wait for, you know, until okay. you're five feet or eight, a thousand AGL or something, and then throw like wingsuits do. Because our parachutes, um, they would just dist- they would just disintegrate right. if you throw it at, at terminal. So um, they don't they don't work that way. They're not built for that. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I like look at. All of this stuff that you've done, and I, I mean, obviously, I can't really relate to it. Um, and I, I also can't quite relate sometimes to your outlook. Don't you want some sort of safety in your life, like, like some sort of comfort? Um, I've never been all that driven by that. Yeah, uh, yeah I, you know, I, I. I this comfort zone really freaks me out. Um, and I, and I don't know where that came from. Um, you know, it's, it's something that I've always just run from at full speed. I, I, I really, uh, like day to day type stuff, you know, where, where there's, you know, any repeat in my life that really has always made me nervous. I'd like someday that for that not to be the case, (laughs) but, um, you know, I like I said, I, I definitely am not cavalier about the risk. I think I was for many years. Uh, you know, I was whatever daredevil. Uh, you know, back in the ski racing days. But um, you know, definitely now, um, I've had enough friends get hurt or killed that you know that's not what I'm after. You know, I, and I, like you know, I hear this term like death wish. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the opposite of you know i think if anything i have a life wish um because it's just amazing well i i I really really enjoy it and so um but safety yes safety does make me a little bit nervous now that being said you know when we got done with the sailing in 2011 um you know moved back to the states i'd been abroad for 15 years or so at that point and and uh you know i live in a house i bought about my first house here in sun valley and and uh you know i think my my life's a little bit more stable than it has been for a long time and i really am enjoying that you know mm-hmm. i grow herbs and <laughs> i don't have a dog yet but um yeah so i, I don't have a, a ton of stability but um i i mean it's definitely it's a subject that i think about a lot mm-hmm. um you know and i i definitely am i'm trying to be more careful do you do you get 
uh, how do I want to say this? Do you get, does it get worse as you get older? Does, do you get more and more scared that you're not capitalizing on more and more opportunities as you get older? Yeah, FOMO. I've got it bad. Yeah, FOMO. yeah, for, yeah. That's a way better way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you put it better. But I, um, yes, absolutely. You know, I, I, um, I, I did this really cool project with Will Gad. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure you know Will. You know, really famous ice climber, really incredibly uh, gifted pilot. Um, he and I did this trip across the Canadian Rockies last last fall uh, that we ended up getting the National Geographic Adventure of the Year for. Um, it was just a super deep line and really amazing trip. I I, I never I didn't know Will before that trip. We met literally the day before we started this thing, and it took us um, 35 days to complete. And uh, amazing project. And I think, God, man, when you do stuff like that, you get done and you're like, I just want to keep going. Mm-hmm. I just want – I don't want this to stop. Um, and so, yeah, I've got that pretty bad. And then, of course, you, like you said, um, the, I mean the cool thing about paragliding is that you don't um, – you don't necessarily need a ton of physical ability uh, mm-hmm. to, to do well. Like, you know, these bivy trips and certainly what I did in the X Alps, that was insanely physical. They, they, you know, they call that the quote unquote, the hardest adventure race on earth. So I certainly won't be able to do that forever and ever. But, um, you know, I, I think that again, if I'm smart, I could, I could be doing this for a long time. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I I split that decision. You know, there, there's there's two things. On the one side, I've got FOMO really bad, and on the other side, I'm so grateful for the experiences that I've had. Um, you know, that I think you know I've come to terms with. Um, you know, there will be an end, and we all share that end, and I'm I'm okay with that. You know, my 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 dad died a few years ago, and it was really an interesting process to watch how scared he was to go through that process, and um, I'd like to think I have my head around that a little bit better than he did. Yeah, you know, I, he had this like he had so much guilt and so much. Oh my God, I didn't do, and he didn't. You know, he chased money um, instead of life, and I think that um, you know. So that was a really cool thing, uh, you know. Sad, but a really cool thing for me to go through with him was mm-hmm. that you know, um, um, we've only got this one chance. So, yeah, I figure sometimes you should push it. Highlights of today's episode on our website mtnmeister.com. To hear more about Gavin and Will's adventure in the Canadian Rockies. Subscribe to our Play Director package. That's $20 a month. Or if 20 bucks is just a little too expensive, how about $4 a month? Four bucks. It's called Buy Ben a Beer. It's not going to be used toward beer. It's going to be used toward podcast expenses. And yes, those exist. Just fill out your credit card information on that page. It gives you access to this sweet thing that we call a prize pack. I'm looking at... All of the items that are going to compose the prize pack, it's a big box in the Mountainmeister headquarters, and it is composed of some really funky, interesting, new hip gear. I'm looking at some turn signal gloves right now. Yes, turn signal gloves. Those are some of the weirder items. We also have some nutrition products from Frontier Snacks, Navita Naturals. We also have buffs in our prize packs. Voke Tab, which is an energy supplement. Uh, let's see, a caffeine chewable 
called Compete Energy Bites. We've got Wigwam Socks. We've got Secure 4-in-1 Portable Power. We've got iPad cases, iPhone cases, all worth over $100. Sometimes they're worth $200. Somebody got a sweet pair of sunglasses the other week from Smith. So 4 bucks a month or $20 a month, whatever you want to give, please help us out mtnmeister.com slash support. Now, Gavin, you said that you wanted Will on the show next time. Tell us one question that we should ask Will. You know, he he gives talks on the positive power of negative thinking, and that is a subject that is fascinating to explore with him. And this is kind of, again, going back to that glass, you know, the rock that's going to break the glass, but um, he really does approach everything with a negative mindset. What could go wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think most people look at things and go, what can go right? And and I think that that's why he's been in it so long. And and really injury free you know he tweaks his fingers and he's a climber so that you know you 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 hurt ligaments and that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. but i mean for the most part will's never been hurt and uh that's pretty remarkable very remarkable keep an ear out for will on a future episode of mountain meister uh you know, Gavin, maybe the coolest thing, in my opinion, you've done is to host a podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm, I'm very new at it. I've, I've got I've got quite a few to do to catch up with you. But. <laughs> how's how's it going? Tell us a little bit about your podcast. Well, you know, it was born out of we we had a, a World Cup here. It was actually just the second comp I'd ever a competition that I'd ever competed in. It was a World Cup here in Sun Valley. It was literally like a few days after I moved to Sun Valley. Um, so this is when all the best pilots in the world come together and we race around the sky. It's like a sailboat race in the sky. And after that, we had another competition here called the Sun Valley Wide Open or something. We had really bad weather and we couldn't fly, but there were all these amazing pilots. You know, this is still I was pr- still pretty new in the game. And, um, you know, really heavy hitters from around the world got up and gave talks to the rest of us, you know, about how to how to eat when you're flying and how to stay, you know, sharp and how to push things and how to recover, a, you know, a competition glider and just fantastic subjects that were all, you know, super valuable for everybody, even the really good pilots. And luckily, um, one of them, I pulled out a camera and I recorded it. I just recorded the video and put it up on YouTube and the thing went kind of crazy in our little world right. and paragliding niche. And so ever since then, for a year and a half after that, I thought, God, you know, I've got access to, you know, some of the best pilots there are. And uh, and I'm a podcast freak. I love podcasts. Uh, I listen to them all the time. You know, when I did all the training for the X-Alps this winter, I spent a lot, you know, I, did, I think I did 2,000 kilometers on the ground just walking on concrete with mm-hmm. my pack in the rain and the snow. And and um, so the podcasts I found were, were a lot more valuable in terms of distraction than music. Yes. And, um, and so I... I started listening to a lot of podcasts and I started kind of narrowing down which ones I really liked the best. And then and I thought, God, you know, I actually owe it. This is like my civic duty. <laughs> it's been kind of fun to, you know, I think we just did our sixth episode, so mm-hmm. we're pretty new, but um, it's been a lot of fun. Good. Cloud-based mayhem, cloudbasedmayhem.com. Gavin, thanks so much for joining us today. Tons of fun. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate that. That that was a lot of fun. We'll have links, videos of truly stunning footage. This is like uh, what I was imagining, Gavin, is this is like the aerial camera over the people that normally have the aerial cameras. (laughs) 
they've been really fun to make. It's, it's fun to show people what we do because most people, want, you know, when you tell them you're a paraglider, they're like, oh, yeah, I did that behind a boat in Cozumel. They're like, no, no, that's not paragliding. <laughs> Sounds a few more thousand feet up in the air. Gavin, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Ben. Meister fans, seriously, go to Gavin's Meister profile page. Stunning, stunning footage of what these guys do. We'll have videos there. We'll have links. Also, while you're using the internet, 25% off of socks from our sponsor, Wigwam. Socks. Also, if you donate to Mountain Meister, four bucks even, four bucks a month, you are automatically entered to win a prize pack that's worth over $100. Yeah, four bucks for $100. Pretty good deal. How about fusion jerky? Yes, craft beef jerky. This one's basil citrus flavor. We also have chicken jerky in there. Ooh, it is nice. I've had a few bags myself. Donate to Mountain Meister and you'll be entered to win one box a month. That's all for me. Enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank, and you've been listening to Mountain Meister. 